Broadcasting live from the Great Northern Hotel in beautiful Twin Peaks, Washington, I'm Matt. I'm Caroline, and this is an episode-by-episode breakdown and discussion of all three seasons of Twin Peaks. There's a hell of a storm brewing out there tonight, folks, so drive safe. And if you need a nice warm place to stop in and get out of the rain, consider the Double R Diner and ask for Norma. Today, we'll be talking about Season 2, Episode 4, Laura's Secret Diary. Ooh, we got there. (laughs) Yeah. After many attempts at recording an intro, stopping and starting all over from scratch, audio adjustments, a journey across the desert, we're here. Uh, Season 2, Episode 4, brought to you by the letter R. No, actually, brought to you by director Todd Holland and written by a whole uh, cast and crew, uh, Jerry Stahl, Mark Frost, Harley Payton, and Robert Engels. There's a lot of different ands and then ampersands, which are like because of how they credit people and different things. Different different kinds of ands means different levels of contribution, but I just did commas because I don't care. <laughs> okay, well, I mean... When you, you texted me saying that there was a scary credits, and it was just the normal credits, so I didn't, I didn't quite understand. I thought maybe they were, they were going to cut, cut things in. But you, meant, say, you meant directly afterwards. I didn't say scary credits. You said creepy credits. I didn't say credits. Didn't you? Did you say opening, maybe? I say, I say the opening of this episode is creepy as shit. What the fuck? Uh, I just threw in credits, I guess. Uh, so immediately after the opening credits, there's a scream over black screen, and then the camera does sort of a, I wrote it down as a corkscrew dolly. Don't think that's a real thing, but I'm going to say it is out of this tunnel as a voice can faintly be heard saying what the closed captions revealed to be, Daddy. And we kind of realize as it pulls further and further back that it is pulling out of a hole in a ceiling tile. Yeah. But it looks like the um, the the thing it reminded me of was that it looks like the like the videos, the anti-smoking ads where they go inside the person's lung. Mm. Like that's what this looked like to mm. me. <laughs> so it's very weird. I completely forgot that this existed anywhere in the show. I did not remember this very weird shot out of the out of the ceiling tile early one for the Uh, weird jar (laughs) totally a coin totally a jar let me live (laughs) you what what word would you like me to use to describe david lynch's work if i'm not allowed to use weird (laughs) Um, how would you have me express let's see it novel uh arresting intriguing i'm just trying to introduce a vocabulary that looks like we if we don't have a depth of knowledge then then a breadth of of words to kind of simulate that you know but hey you know what the weird jars just making money one day we'll that's (laughs) that's our mission statement i just buried this podcast approach to uh pretty much pretty much all papers through college right <laughs> no i don't i don't know if i want to continue <laughs> all right it was mine too to be fair <laughs> it's been what the listeners haven't heard is like a good 45 minutes of struggle to get this off the ground so <laughs> we're already working at a deficit um but as it pulls out of the ceiling tile it is, a, it is a very weird shot, and it reminds me of, like, a worm tunnel. You know, I, I don't know what a worm tunnel would look like, but I always expect, like... No, I always expect, like, termites or, like, a sandworm uh, kind of thing to, to come out of it. Uh, well, put or a, some, like, put a qu- microscopic thing, but... Yeah, it's... put a quarter in the weird jar for yourself. Fine, 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 fine. All right. <laughs> sure. Uh, but it's... The room that they pull back into eventually is in the police station i guess it's an interrogation room and truman is talking to leland about the murder of Jacques renault with well uh, doc hayward just lurks in the background yeah with cooper and doc hayward lurking in the background (laughs) 
and Riven. again, I ask, why is Doc Hayward here? Yeah, I don't know what he has to do with this especially. I don't know. I guess, like, Doc Hayward probably just has a lot of money. He's working constantly. Uh, although, like, given the state of American healthcare, like, having uh, a wife in a wheelchair must be really hard, so I bet a lot of it goes to that. But Leland admits to killing Jacques. He sort of puts on a big speech about absolute loss and how it makes every fiber of his body sort of, like, cry out and says that, yeah, he indeed, he had to kill him because, you know, his daughter. It just sort of ends there, right? I mean. Yeah, there's not much. So um, they they leave, or, or Coop and Doc Hayward leave. Doc Hayward makes some comment about um, something to the effect of, of everything Leland's been through, and, and it's it's sympathetic, and Coop just gets very... I don't know. He's just, he's sort of, I I have in my, my own notes, I, I said just like he goes back to being asshole Coop, um, which he, we've commented before his sort of his aggressiveness in some of the early interrogation scenes of like Bobby and stuff like that. But anyway, yeah, so he says like, do you, do you approve of murder? <laughs> Yeah, Dr. Hayward and, and just Dr. storms Hayward off. Because no, <laughs> then Coop just yeah just leaves. Uh, Andy pulls Doc Hayward aside to ask about his sperm count, and Hayward, like right there, just gives him a vial and I guess a porn magazine, and says like, "Get me a sample. I'll wait in the car." Uh, I think it's one of the copies of Flesh World. Oh, I think Andy goes. Oh, and Andy gets, gets it, it himself goes and gets a copy of flesh world like out of the out of the evidence <laughs> okay that's good i like that a lot because i didn't see hayward give him the magazine and that would have been weird if he was just carrying that on <laughs> so that makes sense where that arrived from because then andy of course uh collides with lucy they drop their whatever they're respectively holding and lucy sees the porn magazine looks up sees restroom puts two and two together uh almost and storms off it's actually great because then someone's on the phone and she just tells him to shut up as the shot like pulls back and then they're in a lobby and it's a scene with a trooper. Trooper? <laughs> crewman. Trooper and crewman. I told you, I'm running on empty. Uh, uh, Cooper and Truman sitting and talking in the lobby. Uh, so it's funny to see Lucy just sort of progressively give less and less of a shit uh, <laughs> as our man troubles uh, increase. But I was going to say, it starts here, but I really like the way that they use their locations and space in this episode to sort of tie the stories together and keep things transitioning well. I think this is probably a lower budget episode because there's not as many locations and they're almost entirely indoors. But when, mm-hmm. but I think when you can like give sets like these some some real geography in the way that characters move through them, I think it makes up for some some of the limitations of having that lower budget, because yeah, it's we're moving from the literally from the ceiling tile through the interrogation room out through one of the like waiting areas. Cooper goes somewhere else. Hayward goes back in Andy goes through to the bathroom Lucy comes back out of that hallway sits down in her office and then they pull back into the lobby or a lobby-ish mm-hmm. area and Truman and Cooper are there talking so yeah they do this throughout the series they use the diner for this a lot where they'll um, sort of shift plot lines just by like moving over to the next booth and oh look James and Donna are sitting there or whatever but um, yeah, I think you're right that they, they do that in, in the other locations in this episode in a way that I don't think they have before. And you also we get to see more of the police station, yeah. I think, which mm-hmm. is kind of nice. Not that it's all that so. novel, obviously, but I don't I don't like it's really done really well in this episode. So it sticks out to me. Mm-hmm. But they sort of talk about uh, tro- Trooper and crewman. They, t- <laughs> they talk about procedural stuff, saying that the the judge Clint Sternwood 
What a name. Yeah, a Winnebago outdoorsman is uh, arriving that afternoon. Uh, So is the state prosecutor, Daryl Lodeson, Lodes something. I didn't write it down. Lodewick, I wrote it down later, is arriving as well. And they will sort of see to Leland's bail and Leo's competency hearing, one of the things. They also say that uh, Truman relays that Hawk has found out from the, I don't know, city council pro lakes or whatever that no one named robertson was registered to have lived in the house that leland directed them to and the last known residents were named caspiel although <laughs> i said before we started recording that i spelled that wrong for sure so i don't really think that's what it is but it's something close so whatever horseshoes and hand grenades all that you know <laughs> i do have to just this is my my one uh, n- not understanding of the legal system in Twin Peaks and and this is this is my one like logistical nitpicky thing but I'm surprised that they don't have their own judge that's like in the town or at least in closer proximity hmm. um, that that they have a judge who has to like kind of go around on a on a Winnebago. in a Winnebago well, cuz he's an outdoorsman. You can't tie you can't tie a judge like that down to just one courthouse baby. All right? That that guy's got to roam free. But like <laughs> Twin I know I know. This is not just... a new sentiment. <laughs> However, Twin Peaks is a town of 50,000 people. That means it is in a county that has more than 50,000 people. I guess it could be like a really geographically big county, but they should have their own judge. And I'm surprised that Twin Peaks is not like, if they're not like in the same county as a city, which I don't think they are, because they seem very remote. I'm surprised they're not the county seat, because it seems like they must be the largest town <laughs> for a while. If you love Clint Sternwood, set him free, okay? <laughs> I do love Clint Sternwood. He's great. Yeah, well, what county is Twin Peaks in? I don't know. Hmm. One for the Wikipedias. Or maybe uh, maybe the books that Mark Frost has published. We ought to read those and do a review on those for no one to listen to. Uh, we should do literally any amount of research for this podcast God. ever. Yeah. I watched the episodes twice. That's basically, <laughs> that's basically like research, right? Andy bumps into someone heading, I guess, out of the bathroom. And drops his sperm sample, which rolls under a chair. <laughs> and uh, while fishing it out, Cooper spies his boots, much to Andy's chagrin, thinking that Cooper had spied something else. But Cooper recognizes that they are the same boots found at Leo Johnson's, and Andy remarks that he bought them from Phil Gerard while he was waiting. So Dale yet again. I wrote Dale, I think, once in this entire notes list, and it felt very weird. Because I either have Coop or Cooper. I never say Dale, but I want to work Dale in more. So Dale says they got to find the one-armed man, which I feel like is like the fifth time he said that in the last five episodes. Uh, it's, it's a recurring theme. Bring that man into, like, custody or something. Like, you know, like, can't you question it, you know, for questioning? I don't know. A, uh, a concierge whose name I think was Janet. Uh, it's Louie. Oh, really? Because it's the same person that Norma was talking to on the phone, and then later oh, well, it comes up. Okay, he calls yeah. a Janet, though. Is Janet Maybe Janet's the lady that Audrey spills the coffee on and like very early? I don't remember. Well, all right. A concierge informs Ben that an enigmatic food critic, or just general critic, because they're worried about the Great Northern, too, so I'm not sure. Yeah, this, he says travel writer. Travel and writer, okay. One. When they're talking to Norma, they say food critic. All right. But... Eh, whatever. Again, horseshoes and nuclear bombs. What's the phrase that I just used earlier? Hand grenades. Yeah, horseshoes and hand grenades. Corollary <laughs> nuclear bombs. So the enigmatic travel writer M.T. Wentz is coming to Twin Peaks, and so they should buff up appearances, especially for anyone that pays using cash, because no one knows who this guy is. Uh, ben agrees, I guess. And then heads to his office where he finds Jean Renault, who plays the video of Audrey tied and gagged. How long 
has Audrey been missing for now is my question. How is this not an ongoing investigation also? Well, I know. Cooper knows. Like, <laughs> Cooper, <laughs> this, is, this carries back to my complaints earlier in previous episodes. This doesn't make sense. This is a town where multiple teenage girls have been kidnapped and killed. Uh, fucking get on this shit, cops. <laughs> and also, what a bad time. Like, what a dumb-ass time for these people to try and do a teenage girl hostage kidnapping. Like, uh, you guys are going to get all that other shit pinned on you by any any investigator that is just, you know, not quite as competent as Dale Cooper. So, yeah. Well, and in fact, and in fact, Jean hints to Ben that he does not uh, particularly care for the people that he is middlemanning this hostage situation for. Kind of hints at their identities, and Ben, Ben seems to know, right? Because he says he, he, I had my suspicions. I so I don't well, know exactly but, what is made clear to him here, but it seems like I, so. I think because Jean Renault says that he he wants to part he wants to be a partner of Ben's with One-Eyed Jacks like he wants a, a share of One-Eyed Jacks I guess and so I think what what Ben is saying he had his suspicions about was that the people who were running One-Eyed Jacks presumably Blackie and Emery Battis were stealing from him were were stealing money okay um and so I think oh. that was what he says was made clear. But I think there is, like, I think you're right that he does sort of hint at the broader situation. Well, it just seemed to me, like, I guess I sort of had that thought that that was what he was going for. But given the, I don't know, context that he's delivering these remarks, it's, it seems like it gives away the ghost a little. Like, I don't know. Right. Uh, but he, yeah. He basically talks Ben into accepting his quote-unquote help. If he agrees to have Agent Cooper deliver the ransom, so I yeah. it works out well for him, given extenuating circumstances. He doesn't know, but I will say that were this not a TV show where all the parts are going to fit together quite so conveniently, this is a big ask. He is an FBI agent, and Ben knows that. Yeah, so, just saying. Yeah, <laughs> but Donna picks up Meals on Wheels from Hank at the double R and they give each other a bit of a hard time, which I really like. I love these little scenes. I love these these transitionary scenes and the fact that they like lead to other things later in the episode. Again, I, I point out these things like these don't happen on other TV shows, and I know they do, but I watch a lot of other TV shows and they don't stick out to me as much. So I don't know if I'm just like real easy on this show, but I try to be hard on it, so I don't, I don't know. Um, Norma gets a call from, I guess, Louis at the Great Northern that the once travel writer, now food critic, Empty Wentz, is coming. And Hank perks up and decides to go trick out the diner with tablecloths and a special menu. Uh, And he's being very fun with Norma. And on his way out, just happens to suggest that she call Big Ed so that if Wentz stops in for gas, he can recommend the diner. And I, I really yeah. like this because Hank really, really is fun and he's acting really nice. And the actor is able to turn the turn it on and off so well here. And then just the subtle hint where he doesn't actually get menacing. He doesn't like, you know, they don't cue up the, the dangerous music and his eyes suddenly change. Now he's like fun and relaxed the whole way through, but just like happens to drop that suggestion. And yeah, suddenly Norma's smile just like, you know, at- yeah. atrophies somewhat. It's it's a really good scene, and I really like these scenes with with Hank being being you know really like yeah fun and enthusiastic and you know doing doing all this stuff you know being like oh yeah we gotta like make the diner you know get new specials on the menu and um, spruce it up spruce it up and and yeah he's he is being really um, yeah really fun here and I, I think that like. This Hank's character and the actor do what n- never happens with Leo and and that that like Leo's actor like never does, mm-hmm. which is actually be 
be able to switch between this like friendly mode and a, and a more more menacing ones that he has in later scenes where he he doesn't seem menacing in these these scenes with Norma. Mm-hmm. Um, he seems like a really likable guy, and then later in in the episode in different scenes he is really intimidating. And so, um, yeah, I I think it's he's Leo two point Leo point yeah <laughs> yeah. Harold and Donna uh, eat the meals on wheels that she just picked up from Hank. So that's a good little touch there. Uh, they're drinking some wine and they toast to Laura before Harold reads a very personal and uh, uncomfortably revealing passage from Laura's yeah, it's, secret diary. Well, it's it's a passage that's kind of about, it's about Donna. Yes. Um, that's weird. I don't know why he thought this was a good idea to begin with, even if he didn't realize when he started that the passage was about Donna. Oh, he knew. No, he's a... That's the whole no. That's why. That's why she. We'll get to it later. But like, she knows he's a creep. Yeah. She's playing him, right? <laughs> <laughs> Am I gonna eat my? <laughs> I'm always so concerned about this season. I'm gonna eat my words an episode later. But I feel like this, especially when he goes, because he reads this a passage about Donna, uh, where Laura kind of makes fun of Donna a little bit, and then goes on to talk about some of her sort of dark fantasies, which is equally uncomfortable. Donna says that they should give the diary over to the police. And then Harold goes on about how, like, no, it's his. Laura gave it to him. And moreover, like, people generally give him stories, and he sort of contextualizes them in a larger novel of life about the sort of the people that he knows. Whatever the hell that means. Yeah, well, I feel like this is, like, this is the moment where Donna is like, oh, like, he was, like, sort of... I feel like she realized that he was intentionally trying to bait her with that passage. I don't think he was naive about yeah. it. No, that's fair. It is such a weird, it's such a weird scene. He's so, ugh, yeah, he is just like, all the, all the scenes with him are like very off-putting in various ways. Ben shows Cooper the video and playing upon their uh, special relationship quote unquote i don't know why cooper doesn't deny this more vehemently uh asks him to take the ransom yeah it's so weird like sorry i i have said weird too many times this episode um (laughs) yeah i'm like putting like two more into the uh the jar that's fair i've been lenient but yeah no it is i did because i expected i didn't really remember what happened exactly in this scene and i did expect cooper to deny what ben seems to be implying here but he just doesn't like at all he doesn't say anything i feel like yeah he just sort of stands there and then he you know i think he says something about the when he makes some response when ben asks him to to take the ransom money but yeah josie finally arrives home with lots of boxes looks like she was out shopping and plays dumb with pete about Catherine's demise yeah Whoever told her about the mill burning down must have... Like, if she knew about the mill burning down, she must have known about Catherine. Well, I mean, she mastered all this. Well, no, I know. But, like, like, it was surprising even that she was... I was surprised that she even tried to pretend that she didn't know. Because it seems like there are phones in Seattle. (laughs) Like, it seems like somebody just would have called her. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I guess the whole thing is that nobody really knows where she's at, but... I mean, doesn't... Like, the fact that she disappeared to just, like... It's all so fishy. Kind of crazy that Truman has not... uh, Well, we'll get there. (laughs) She should be arrested. She should be arrested. I mean, like... (laughs) When he... Like, Coop... Truman is... Like, shouldn't Truman be taken... Like, yeah, off this case... (laughs) Yeah, like Hawk or somebody should go arrest her. Yeah, the fact that Cooper, uh, whatever, whatever. Well, Coop's Coop's FBI, so he can't, but Hawk certainly could. No, but or, I mean, but like, he was like, he's been giving Truman the benefit of the doubt, and he was like previously like, oh yeah, no, talk to her before we. His his yeah. his respect for the law is uh, it is so flexible. The razor's edge that man walks. Uh, <laughs> but they're. Pete says that they're going to hold a service for Catherine, but they haven't found a body, so they don't know what to bury. Likely burned 
you know, to ashes, nothing left. Uh, maybe they'll Did find they... some teeth. Well, I was going to ask. I thought at some point that they did find teeth, but I may have been, because it hasn't happened yet. (laughs) (laughs) I keep waiting for them to find teeth, because I thought that was, I thought that that came up at some point that they, yeah, they like found teeth. But so, I don't know. We'll find out. Yeah. Everybody can be in suspense with me about whether they find Catherine's teeth. Emery Battis hauls a very doped up Audrey in to see Jean Renaud. Uh, and after Audrey, <laughs> I, I like it too because they, f- for the doped up stuff, they just have the camera like lolling to the side at different angles and they play some like filter effect over everyone's voices. But it's pretty effective as far as these things go. Um, yeah. I, I like the effect that it generates. It's, it's low budge and simple. Uh, and Audrey says that Bad has hit her. And so after Badis kind of babbles on a little bit, thinking that he's in a position of power, uh, Jean just shoots him through the heart and kills him, kind of snapping Audrey out of her uh, heroin uh, days. Yeah. I forgot that that happened. Me too. Good. (laughs) I was very surprised. He, like, pulled the gun, and I was just like, what? (laughs) Eat shit, Badis. Yeah. I'm earning that explicit tag today. We are. We earn, it, we earn it every week. Oh, yeah. But I'm just making sure. I'm putting in the work. I don't want anyone to doubt me. We're halfway through my pages and notes, which means it's time to take a quick break to review a TV show that I watched. I saw JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Part 5 Golden Wind uh, on Crunchyroll. We do not have a sponsorship from Crunchyroll, but if they want to offer us one, I'm happy to plug them. They were pretty good subtitles. I really liked this part. JoJo's has each part as its own accolades, but this might have been my favorite one so far. Mafia meets superpowers is excellent. In the middle of Venice, perfect. And it is and it is just as bizarre and weird. Dropping the charge as Twin Peaks is. So that's a plus. You got one too. Oh, yeah. I know that like I'm sure that this is uh, this is not an original sentiment by any means, but oh my god, go watch Fleabag. That's all. The Emmys agree with you. The Emmys do agree. The Emmys are right. And while you're and then while you're at it, look up the picture of Phoebe Waller-Bridge with all her Emmys. Oh my god. It's a female-written and produced show that she also stars in that won a bunch of Emmys. She's very good. She's a very good writer. She deserves all of those Emmys. I didn't know she wrote it. I thought she was just acting in it. Mm-mm. No, no, no. She wrote the whole thing. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've seen some of it. I liked what I saw, what you showed me. So Andy tries to talk to Lucy, but she shuts him down. And he just walks back outside. He just <laughs> waits outside as Cooper walks in and implores her to open up. She says that she and Andy used to go out, but basically he was too slovenly. That He didn't wash his car. He didn't uh, own a sports coat and something else. And so they took a break. And in the interim, she met one Dick Tremaine. And even though he was as his, uh, oh, surname? No. Proname? <laughs> first name. <laughs> I was trying to think of a fancier way to say first name. But I guess not. As his first name implies. He was a dick, but he was higher brow, so she liked that. Um, but she doesn't know what she wants now. And after Cooper tries to pressure her, she kind of takes off crying. Yeah. There's a fun moment where, um, like, Truman comes out and sees that Lucy's gone off crying and makes makes some joke about, I don't, uh, I don't know, Lucy's emotional women. Potholes. That's what it was. It's like fixing potholes on Route 9 if, uh... Yeah. First sign of the first big rain, it's all gone. (laughs) It was a marginally less, it was a marginally more clever and less sexist joke than I was expecting when the scene started, because it (laughs) I could immediately tell. I was like, oh, the two men are standing next to each other as a woman walks off crying. What a, what someone uncomfortable remark are they going to make? But this will end well. Um, It wasn't the worst. Cooper, it's, no. Cooper, I know whatever, you're about to go off on a bit, so let me just 
Let me contextualize it before you start your rant. Cooper then asks Truman to borrow a bookhouse boy for an unknown reason, and Truman acquiesces. Uh, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> so I just, I don't, like, what? You have to set, set, the, set the stage a little bit. <laughs> so what happens, actually, is that... Not actually. Cooper's, well, Cooper's, Cooper, more specifically, Cooper says, (laughs) (laughs) you're going to make me choke. I don't know what to tell you. You, I mean. Don't drink in podcasts. (laughs) You saw this scene twice in your watching of it and in my Snapchat video. I mean, what what am I supposed to take away from this? Cooper says, Harry, I've got a dangerous situation. And Truman takes this opportunity to stare at his mouth, at Cooper's mouth, and then looks like he's about to go into a kiss. And then they stand very close for the rest of the scene. It is not heterosexual. Well, That's then, all. Then Truman goes, or Cooper goes on to say that he needs to borrow a boy for reasons that <laughs> Truman shouldn't know about. Well, well, and then, like, it's it's just, like, the, yeah, I mean. I will say the homoerotic, I don't want to, overtones, not undertones, overtones were a lot more apparent in the Snapchat you sent me of that scene than either of my watches. It seemed like in the Snapchat, maybe it was because you had suggested it with text, uh, but it seemed like he stared at his lips a lot longer than he did when I actually saw the episode um i don't i don't know what to tell you it's just but yeah they're like it is it is i I do want to know like what the sort of like acting decisions were that were made there like i literally think it was that the lines written had a slightly sort of like an implied homoeroticism there they realized that after but they thought it was kind of funny and so they decided to roll with it and then, since they were rolling with it, Boy, decided... Michael Ankeen rolled with it. Yeah, just sort of said, like, ah, you know what, just, like, we're not going to make this super explicit, but you guys just, like, yeah, press up against each other and pretend like this is, like, a, yeah, a joke. I don't know. That's my, that's my suspicion. Because it is, it is just a weird, like... I, I mean, yeah, no, Truman's body language in this scene is... And I don't know if it was just, like, oh, demonstrate trust. <laughs> <laughs> Acting one oh one. I don't know. No, like I don't know if it was meant to be like Aunt, okay, Aunt Keen like... befriend <laughs> to McLaughlin. No, I mean I just like I don't it, it it is an intimate scene, right? Like the the like even if it's even platonically it is an intimate scene, and so I don't know if it's just like that that it was just that that was meant to be how it came off or or if there was some intentionality to how they the two of them played it but yeah i don't i you know i i i think i may have maybe in my notes maybe um i didn't actually say any of this but i I may have like joked about it in in other points in the episode it is really just this this one scene i was gonna say Uh, but it is it is just such a like what (laughs) It's it's so much in like two seconds of footage, and I'm gonna be thinking about it for the rest of this season. That's all. Back to the episode. Um, okay, well, so food, a food critic-looking man, I guess. They seem to think <laughs> everyone seems to think so once he arrives at the double R. Uh, he doesn't look any different than anyone else well so that's what's funny is because they. but i guess they just don't recognize him that may be it we, we don't either he's a, looks like a new character but they see they see who they think is empty whence there's a there are in fact tablecloths and candles as hank promised and although they offer him the special he just wants a hamburger they helicopter around him a little too much and they actually kick a, a regular named toad into the back to eat but what I thought was funny was that, like, this guy and Toad look identical. There's no difference between them. Uh, yeah. And when the food critic heads to the back uh, to use the bathroom, Hank lifts his wallet out of his coat. 
on the other side of the... Well, and it's it's the the prosecutor. Well, no, it's not Darryl revealed Ludwig. yet. Jeez. It's at, I, it's, okay, yeah, so when he, when he checks the ID, it is Daryl Ludwig, state prosecutor. It doesn't come up later in the episode, does it? They say Daryl Ludwig it's, earlier. No, but he doesn't check the ID till after Donna and Maddie have their talk. Oh, sorry. Check the notes. Jeez. I did, and it says... Hank checks the wallet ID, and it's the state prosecutor, Daryl Lodwick. That's, but are, you didn't read the sentence right. directly before, before <laughs> that, which is the thing I was trying to say before you so rudely interrupted me. On the other side of the counter, the center counter, that's a good way to divide it to show that, like, why you wouldn't have seen them in that previous scene, which is my complaint in the other episode. Uh, Donna and Maddie are sitting... I guess, working things out. Uh, Maddie claims that nothing's going on with her and James, but Donna plays it cool and says that she doesn't care if James is seeing other people because she might be too. But basically that she is going to secure Laura's diary, secret diary, with or without them. Uh, So this is what I was saying, where I think Harold's baiting her, just sort of like convinced her, nah, he's a creep. I'm I'm going to get this diary from him. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then... Yeah, Hank checks the wild ID, and it's a state prosecutor. Daryl Lodwick. Uh, lightning cracks as Truman's... There's a lot of... I was going to say, there's a lot of, like... Uh, in, in regards to the lightning, there's a lot of, like, atmospheric, ominous... Yes, yes, like, yes. Pacific Northwest. Well, so that's that was the other thing I was going to say. Uh, in addition, that I like, besides the way they use their limited locations here, is that they build this storm... That starts basically with this scene, lightning cracking as Truman sits with Josie. Um, they build the storm through the whole episode. They have a scene where I think it's one of the the lights turning red transitional scenes where the background is much more yeah overcast and gray than usual. And there's a couple more of the uh, the trees with the overcast stuff, and it gets it gets progressively darker. Um, mm-hmm. And you hear some rain. Oh, because uh, earlier when Andy, after Cooper asked Truman for the bookhouse boy, it cuts to Andy still waiting outside after Lucy kicked him out. And you can see it starting to rain. So they really slowly, like the course of the episode, the storm rolls in. And as it turns to night, you get rain and then lightning. And again, not super novel, but it's it gives the episode just a almost like a geographic or like a... And yeah, an atmospheric arc, uh, literally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very. It is a very, um, very ominous episode. Um, just in the way that they, in like, yeah, the weather, the transitional shots, they're very, very intentionally ominous. When most of what happens in the episode wouldn't be that ominous without this sort of extra stuff. But I think it works. But it's cool because it builds to something that it, like it's not. There's no supernatural conclusion to the sort of no. atmosphere. It's just it is it is a literal one. It is a lightning storm, and you see however and and everyone arrives at different points in the storm. I don't know. I I really like it. I think it's a nifty little nifty little device to just set this episode apart. Um, so Truman is sitting with Josie and kind of insists on knowing the truth. It seems like. Even to him, it's a little—it's a little too fishy to suspend his his disbelief that much. She kind of acts offended that he would dare suggest that she burn the mill for insurance money. And when he rushes to her, she begs him to quote take her, which may be my least least favorite. Uh, I hate this scene. Yeah, phrase with regards to sex, and also the scene is very bad because she then insists that he tear one of the expensive garments that she had just bought. And then they, like, fuck, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> also, <laughs> they go from zero to 100 so, so fast. fast. Like, we go from, yeah, like, I get that it's obviously she's just like, oh, this will change the subject. But, like, Josie, just, like, calm down for two seconds. Like, well, Jesus. It does work, though, because... She, because no, Truman, Truman stops for a second and is like, "Wait, no, you need to tell me the truth." And then just immediately goes back to making out with her. Lightning, and then he does tear the dress. Yeah, he does. Um, lightning flashes, 
to reveal that the man from Hong Kong is looking in <laughs> directly next to them from the window. Uh, which I should have been creepy, but I guess, like, given the context, it's just creepy, but the different kind. Uh, less Jason Voorhees, more, like, just garden variety pervert. Uh, <laughs> well, Judge, one good thing finds its way out of the rain and inside uh judge sternwood arrives safe and sound to greet lucy after what has been a tough day for lucy and a long day of travel for judge clint sternwood um i love this man he's so good he's so he's so good he's so rotund um <laughs> rotund i don't think so he's not round it's not particularly round yeah Maybe his face is then. His face is pretty round and looks a little bit like a bird. <laughs> um, but he's just, he's so wholesome. He's very wholesome. He, like, gives Lucy a hug because, you know, she's had a bad day. He wants some coffee, though. Truman arrives and Sternwood immediately picks up on his lady troubles before he's introduced to Cooper, who says that he loves uh, their little slice of heaven. And Sternwood suggests that it is... A rather difficult slice of heaven with, like, how many crimes have happened. It's a good exchange, <laughs> yeah. and all I wrote was good exchange, so I can't quote it, but... Yeah, well, so Cooper, Cooper like, calls it paradise or oh, something, okay. and then Sternwood says, you know, well, this week in paradise, we've got, a, you know, s- you know, this many homicides. See, and... you couldn't name the crimes either. <laughs> like, I don't know, he says, like, you know, two homicides... Um, attempted murder of a federal agent arson arson and the attempted murder of a federal agent and cooper's just sort of like well (laughs) but it's funny too because heaven's a wide and interesting place yeah well and then um it's funny too because i think that like earlier in the this exchange right when sternwood is talking to lucy he says something like you know, life is hard, but there are a lot of places where it's a lot harder than here in Twin Peaks. So, I mean, how many homicides is this man dealing with on, on a regular basis when he's not in Twin Peaks? I was going to say, Twin Peaks is sort of anomalously difficult place to live, uh, at least in the past couple of weeks. So, oh, Dick Tremaine also sort of appears in a cross between Jason Voorhees and Garden Variety Pervert uh, behind Lucy in the police station to offer her money. But she realizes that it is money for an abortion. And he refers to it as her little problem that he has scraped together as much cash as he can to take care of. And she goes nuclear on him, basically. Is this the last time we see Dick Tremaine? It'd be great, but I doubt it. I don't think it is, but I wish that it was. I mean, this would be a good reason, because like, he he tries to get a word in his no, he... and she says that she'll scream if he does anything else, and... She lets out a little yeah. yelp, and he takes off, so. Yeah. No, he shows up later. He shows up at the end with all the great northern, like, pageant stuff. See, if this had been, I guess, spo- not really spoilers for season three, but, like, if this had been season three, David Lynch totally would have had a scene where he, like, yeah, walks out into the night, and then some spirit thing comes by and, like, tears him in half. Like, he would not have made it. <laughs> you know, this man would have gotten... Would have gotten murdered by a homeless ghost. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Headcanon, that's what happens. Dick Tremaine ceases to exist after this scene. He wanders out into the storm, and he's killed by a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> Who wouldn't want to see that? I'm actually... Well, I guess some stuff does happen in the storm, but... Uh, Leland is brought in to see Sternwood, who gives a speech, an interesting sort of toast. Uh, I think he and I think he and Major Briggs should get together. And oh make yeah, some they really should because he sort of segues from being sad about or like disappointed to see Leland there uh, into this. I don't know. He mentions that they'll all drink a, again in Valhalla when they. Yeah, I was gonna say it's a lot. It is a lot, but I love it. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, he I... makes this whole whole speech about, like, and he, he says specifically, like, 
which is why I think he and Major Briggs should should uh, should talk. Um, he has this whole sort of little thing that he does about how to to Leland. He talks about how um, you know we all must submit to the law and our roles within the law. And um, but you know before we uh, do, I guess um, it's like. He and then he makes this speech, sort of as a you know, saying to Leland, like, okay, we're you know, you've con- confessed to a murder, and I'm the judge, so you know, this there is a a procedure here. But as someone who has worked with you for all of these years, like, let me say, you know, and then he gives this little speech, and it's nice. I like it. I wonder. I was gonna ask before uh, when talking about his exchange with Cooper, but also now thinking about his similarities in loquacious speech giving ugh try to say that to make it sound smarter but it came out very bad uh, <laughs> to uh major briggs whether it got difficult for them after like the fifth sort of like wholesome pacific northwest old white dude who has to give wholesome speeches to to like write different characters that are unique it's like oh let's see we got truman oh we got cooper oh we got uh we got we doc got Briggs. we got doc hayward <laughs> we got yeah just now we got the judge and then we also have actually no mayor uh mayor milford is not a wholesome white man <laughs> no he's the worst um no but you know what i don't care i like i like all their wholesome speeches yeah they're cute i want everyone to be my i want all of these these old wholesome pacific northwest men to be my dad <laughs> is this great. uh yeah no no research here but i wonder if this is some actor that we would know from soap operas during that time or hmm. or like in the like maybe a soap after soap a soap op- uh, <laughs> i'm dying i'm dying a soap opera actor in like the 70s or 80s or something and that's why i don't know um, yeah, well, he looked he looked familiar. I mean, obviously, I've seen this particular episode before, but he looked he he's always looked familiar to me. I wonder if he was on like the frick was it called? That's a pretty good show, actually. <laughs> but I'm the... pre- but I'm pretty sure that was a game show. Uh. God, it was the literal only other thing that Andy Griffith was on. It's not true. He was in a bunch of stuff, but mm. it's the one that's not the Andy Griffith show. I know. I think it's just that he looks to me like Andy Griffith when Andy Griffith was in Matlock. I think that's why I think this man, I've seen this man before. I think maybe he just sort of looks like, you know, generic cowboy grandpa. Uh, well, so does Andy Griffith. Well, I know. So. I just. <laughs> so that's, that's. That's, I think, why he looks familiar to me. Okay. Um, well, anyway, since the prosecutor, uh, Daryl Lodewick, is late, apparently. Uh-oh. Even though we just saw him. We just saw him. Uh, they'll leave the bail for Leland until the morning. And St- Sternwood then takes off with his hot law clerk uh, to go hook up his Winnebago and dine in the timber room. I wanna. I'm trying to convince Caroline to let me include the Timber Room in the intro, uh, like we're broadcasting out of the Timber Room or something. Well, that's a, that is what we're doing. What am I saying? Or something? That's exactly what's happening right now. Uh, mm-hmm. I just want to be able to. Plug also, it. I feel like I don't know. I guess I've I've not spent any time in. I guess this would be like Eastern Washington to know how similar Eastern Washington is to. Montana, but I do feel like David Lynch should have just set this in Montana. Like <laughs> everybody is dressed like you. Everybody is dressed like they're in Montana. They're all in cowboy hats anyway. I've never been to Montana. Yeah, what, so, is, what are you talking I, about? I no, that's not true. I have been to Montana. I was there earlier this summer. <laughs> oh yeah, you drove through, huh? Um, yeah. Okay, well, uh, he takes over the hot law clerk. Side note: the map behind him on the chalkboard of Twin Peaks mm-hmm. is very, very, very similar in layout to the charcoal drawing of Twin Peaks that was done by David Lynch that was like really recent, recently circulated around the internet. So oh, it actually has more detail. So it's interesting to see that the the geography of the town has remained actually pretty, uh, pretty static 
in his mind is in terms of what it looks like because the road was like an exact match so uh truman confirms that everything is ready for that night uh vis-a-vis i guess the bookhouse boy that cooper has requested that dale dale has requested at the great northern ben watches what i guess were pageant girls it's also like, a bad time to have a teen pageant in twin peaks yeah it seems whoa. like <laughs> oh yeah but this was this is like pre this is pre-social media you know people aren't aware it's booked there already what are they gonna do cancel it Ugh, no they put the deposit down I guess I so. think so. I so I I don't I think this is like labeled like the Tri County Lumber Girls Pageant or something, like yeah. semi like semi final. So I don't know. Is this is this leading up to the Miss Twin Peaks storyline later on, or do they just accidentally nah. have? Nah, okay. It's just an accidental just, extra. They pageant. just have multiple pageants. All right, that is kind of what I suspected, but I thought I might I thought I might throw that angle out there just in case. Uh, oh well. So there's another pageant. Who? I mean, look. I guess pageants are popular around there. Great Northern has a great uh, venue for events. So he looks over at Ben after watching the pageant girls. Sees a strange man, and they bow to each other. And then he, the man is greeted by the concierge Louis, who believes uh, him to be Empty Wentz. Gives his name as Mr. Tajimura, uh, and pays in cash, which is what sets off the suspicion that it's empty wins. Uh, Mr. Tajimura looks. This is interesting, <laughs> and I we can just leave it at that. I think. I will just say this. <laughs> this plot line was <laughs> has always been bad. It's also not aged well. <laughs> I just... That's all. <laughs> okay. So, Cousin Jonathan, the man from Hong Kong, arrives to see Josie and is introduced to Pete as Cousin Jonathan. Pete is kind of escorted out of the room, and he, uh, Jonathan discusses plans with Josie. He says that her job is almost done and that she's wanted back in Hong Kong to see Mr. Eckert. I don't think we've heard of Mr. Eckert before this, have we? Mm-mm. No. Okay, cool. Uh, she says that Hank could be a problem, but that she's she's working on getting Pete to sign the documents and that Harry means nothing to her. Right? She says that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Lightning yeah, flashes well, dramatically, by the way, of course. Yeah. Well, because he says something about, like, what about the sheriff? And then oh, okay. Josie yes. says, he means nothing to me. And then he kind of goes, that's not what I asked. So sort of like, sort of suggesting a, a doth protest too much sort of yeah. moment from okay. Josie, right. I think was, was his implication. Uh, at the at the roadhouse, it turns out that the bookhouse boy that Truman sent was Truman. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a little bit, um, it's a little bit uh, arrogant, I guess, because like, Cooper does say that, like, to Truman, like, I need your best. And then Truman's just sort of like, oh, that'll be me. Well, also, he's like, I can't, you shouldn't know why. And then he just comes along anyway. I feel like he's cheating here. Like, but, I mean, to, to be fair, I mean, Hawk, as far as, like, as far as we know, is still up at wherever Pearl Lake's researching. And, like... What other bookhouse boy does he have to send? I think this would have been a great opportunity to introduce a new bookhouse boy. Yeah, but then we wouldn't have... <sighs> Never mind. <laughs> or, 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 just hear me out, a bookhouse girl. I would have been okay with that. Yeah, but... see? A bookhouse, um... a bookhouse babe, if you will. <laughs> Our original um, title for this podcast. <laughs> it wasn't. It never was. Um, no, but I mean, like, on, on the other hand, I was going to say it does It does make sense um, that, yeah, because, I mean, of the Bookhouse Boys we've seen, like, we've got, what, like, Harry and then Hawk, who's not there, and then Ed, who is fine, but <laughs> I wouldn't call him the most, like, accomplished i don't even know how to describe it 
I'd take Harry over it. Like, I'd, I'd want Harry over Ed if I was going into something dangerous, I guess. So, well, yeah, this enough. None of this does anything to dispel the idea that Bookhouse Boys are, in fact, boys just sort of, like, play-tending play at uh, fighting off evil since, like, there's four of this, just four of them. Well, and uh, what's-his-face? James's motorcycle friend, yeah. Joey Paulson. Uh, well, they could have brought. I would have liked to see some Joey Paulson action. Joey Paulson would have been good. The joke I was gonna make was um, that if they had introduced a new Bookhouse Boy or just sent someone else, that we wouldn't have gotten, as I have in my notes, just. And this was not. This had nothing to do with my previous comment about the, the. Uh, interaction between cooper and truman this was just a note for my own benefit that just says harry in a leather jacket all caps but we've discussed <laughs> this already and i know that you find this <laughs> this opinion of mine puzzling so yeah uh, well it's just it's a it's a it's a weird scene too of like they they're just sitting at the roadhouse and truman is there and then Cooper's like, where is he? Where's the, when's the guy going to arrive? And he's like, oh, any minute now. And then he just, I don't know if he actually does the double thumbs pointing to himself, but it's like, it's me. And I was like, this isn't how adults try to do some, like, secret sting operation act. This isn't. Yeah, but it is how awkward sheriffs flirt with FBI agents. So. Yeah, I guess so, huh? Well, Cooper buys him a beer. and This uh, scene we, is also we, a little bit flirty. We cut away. What? <laughs> It's not I'm, really again. Yeah, I was gonna really say just... I support I support your like retroactive queer coding as much as the next person, but come on, he's just getting them a beer. Yeah, but it's the it's the context. No. Anyway. The context that they're gonna go I mean, I gotta if we just follow this to its logical conclusion, they're gonna go conduct an extra legal operation to ransom back a teenage girl that one one FBI agent may or may not be involved with after she's been kidnapped by the brothel owners that her father, who tried to have sex with her, owns. So yeah, totally OTP. <laughs> Cooper Truman. Truman. Cooper. Crewman. There we go. Trooper. Obviously. Fine. Trooper. Uh, back of the double R, way past business hours, the height of the storm, a man knocks on the door. Hank in his PJs uh, hobbles out to get it, and it turns out to be the man from Hong Kong who beats the shit out of Hank, basically, uh, before pressing his bloody thumbs against him, uses the phrase blood brother, and then smashes his flashlight next to Hank's head to end the episode. Right, and that's what, so the, the thumbs thing, that's in reference to Hank doing doing that to Josie last season, right? Oh, I hadn't even thought about that, but that makes sense. I guess Josie would have had to, Josie's so petty that she was like, hey, specifically just to freak him out, he did this to me a couple of days ago, so just do, just do it back to him. <laughs> I wish we got more of, like, conniving, like, scheming Josie. That would be way more interesting than literally anything else that happens to her throughout than the just entire like rest of the show. Feigning ignorance, Josie. Well, especially because, Or, like, like Josie, Josie as the pawn in the, in the schemes being orchestrated by various men. Right, because there is that cool, like, scene in, in the first season where she's in... She's smoking in Ben Horn's office and she it's, you know, that's when we find out that she's been part of this scheme the whole time and that she mm-hmm. and Ben have been scheming behind Catherine's back. And we get all of this like cool, you know, she gets all this cool like agency and power. And then it's just like, and then she's just sort of, yeah. And then nobody knows what's going I have no idea. I don't remember anything about what happens to her for the rest of the season. And to be fair, even Door as knob. I watch it, well, no, I know. But like, 
Between now and then, I have no idea what happens. And even when I watch it and know what is literally happening, I have no idea what's going on. So, yeah. eh. Um, okay, well. That, <laughs> that aside, I will say, I really, really like this episode. I no longer know what my criteria is for enjoying these because it seems like totally random yeah it seems kind of random the quality sometimes seems irrelevant but this one stuck out to me it's just like i think because it was a lower budget one and because it was just written in such a way that it had had a sort of beginning middle and end and a contained episode arc and like i said just i think the simple but clever use of its locations in moving the characters around yeah just i really like this one it didn't it has it, it uh, this is where some of the cracks start to show especially mr tajimura uh showing up and yeah the josie stuff and just where all that starts to go but uh it is absent some of the some of the stuff that the previous episode set up that is i'm not a fan of so I'm sure, by, I'm sure by the time the next one rolls around, I don't know. But I like this a lot. And the, the sort of leaving it on a kind of cliffhanger, the stuff with Daryl Lodwick, uh, an empty Wentz, you don't get a resolution to it yet. Um, mm-hmm. And and they leave you wondering what's going to happen with uh, with Trooper and Kuman. Oh, I, I'm, I just... <laughs> Hashtag, hashtag logo. <laughs> you say some stuff so I can stop putting my my moot in my footh. Oh. No, I mean I. I also really like this episode. It was like it was very like atmospheric in places. I was like, this seems ominous for no reason, but um, I I kind of like that. I think that. I, I appreciate that it has, um, yeah, it, you get the sense that, like, sometimes there isn't anything, I mean, obviously there's stuff going on, but sometimes there isn't anything particularly, like, creepy or supernatural going on, um, but it's still just a, a sort of, can be an ominous place sometimes, and I think that the way that they do build up this thunderstorm, and the way that they have all of these extra shots, I mean, we get a lot more shots of just, like, Again, like Pacific Northwest scenery, where it's just mm. like some trees, um, and, and you know, I mean, they're they're sort of basic shots, but I I do like that, and I think that um, you know, even with the the introduction of these additional characters, I mean, we haven't gotten really haven't gotten new characters introduced in a while, in the way that like the judge and I guess the the prosecutor kind of come in. Um, right, there's there's new people who are familiar with the town, but are still sort of coming in from somewhere else. It, I don't know, gives it a little bit of there, there's something you know mm-hmm. something new, something um, something else happening, and I, I like that. And yeah, I think that even just the the atmosphere of this, it it has that sort of you know there's a, a certain level of nostalgia that I associate with this show, both that is in the show you know, being set in the nineties, but very nostalgic for the fifties, but also just like in its, in its aesthetic, but also just my own like nostalgia for the show. Um, Mm -hmm. so I, I, I get that feeling a lot, but then it is, yeah, kind of cut through with this, you know, sense of, of, I've said atmosphere too many times now, but atmospheric foreboding. Okay. Foreboding. There we go. Yeah, I think it's it is you mentioned the new characters and there's not too many that show up, but it definitely feels like transitional, like it feels like it's introducing new stuff. But I let I think it is to its credit that it manages to be a transitional episode and again, like and distinct uh and sort of complete in itself. Uh yeah. So yeah, I really like this one. Yeah. It, not a lot as far as connections to other episodes, but No. But it reminds me that like there are still there are still like six episodes left before everything really breaks down. And I was having a thought. My thought was maybe when we get to the stretch of like 
eight episodes that we just really don't enjoy, we could just do it like two by two and just sort of trash them, just trash them <laughs> sort of in short order, you know, just to get them out of the way since we're not going to, I don't, I have no desire to like deep dive into those as much. Sorry. Uh, right in, you know, if you want us to deep dive right in, if you want us to speed run them, tell us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What do you, uh, how do you want us to approach these? We are live from the great northern at gmail.com, or you can tweet at us at Northern Live Pod. Yep. Tell us what you think. Pour one out for Emery Battis if you're a fucking hey. creep. <laughs> yeah. Fuck that guy. Jeez. Uh, next time we will be talking about episode five. Uh, it says here, look up title. All right. <laughs> Thanks for joining us here in the Timber Room. I'm Matt. Are we doing this again? I'm Caroline. They know this already. And this has been Live from the Great Northern. See you next week. Bye.